Amen. Today's passage, we're going to pick up Romans chapter 15. We are in our uh, 84th lesson through the book of Romans. We have been in this for over two years. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure this fall makes three years. Uh, and you may say, well, three years and 84 lessons, that doesn't work out. But it does because we have our August reset. We miss a whole month. We have our various... Uh, special services, Easter, Father's Day, Mother's Day, that kind of thing. And so uh, we don't, I, I teach it about 35, 36 times a year. So uh, we've been at it now for 84 lessons, and we are in the uh, early stages of the 15th chapter. We have, a, after we get done today, we'll have about a chapter and a half left to finish the book of Romans. I intend to be done with that. I said at the beginning of the year, I'd be done by the end of the year, and I'm going to make it. Amen. I intend to be done with that maybe in four to six weeks, and wherever that happens, wherever we are at that point, we're going to make transition to a new series of lessons, and I'll let you know what I'm thinking uh, right now, and I've I've been working on this for a month or so. Uh, I believe we're going to go into the teachings of Jesus Christ. We're going to span the four Gospels. And we're going to deal not, it's not a life of Christ, it's just the teachings of Christ. But we're going to deal with um, the things that Jesus taught in the Gospels. So uh, that'll be our next segment. Uh, I was considering doing a Pentecostal doctrine segment, but I've decided to move that into Wednesday nights. And so if you're not here on Wednesday nights, you're missing out. Starting this Wednesday night, Brother Randy and I will be kicking off a year-long study through basic fundamental Pentecostal doctrine. And when I say fundamental, I mean right down at the very basics. We're going to start with the Bible. Amen. And, and, and the Bible is the infallible Word of God. And we're going to establish the veracity of the Bible. We'll, we'll spend a couple of lessons doing that. Then we're going to move to the doctrine of God. How do you know there is a God? You ever wonder, what if you can't use the Bible to prove it? How do you still prove there's a God? We're going to talk about that. We're going to deal with all that stuff all the way up through uh, salvation, the plan of salvation, righteous living, everything that is a part of basic Pentecostal, fundamental Pentecostal doctrine will be covered on Wednesday nights starting this Wednesday night and going about a year. So uh, come on Wednesday night and you will be blessed. Amen? Now today's passage will conclude... The whole discussion of Christian liberty in the book of Romans, it will also wrap up the main body of the letter to the Romans. With a chapter and a half left in Romans, there's still plenty of material for us to discuss. But when we get done today, we will have covered all of the main messages of the book of Romans. Uh, It's been a month since the last time that I taught from Romans, so let me briefly bring you up to speed on where we are for the last several lessons, really since chapter 12. We've been driving home the same point. We've been saying, love like you've been loved. Show mercy like you've received mercy. Uh, The cross calls us to treat others like Jesus has treated us. And Jesus laid down his life for you and for me. And and, and we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We weren't good enough for it. But he loved us anyway. And the challenge of Paul in the practical portion of Romans beginning with chapter 12 has been to imitate that, to love others like Jesus has loved us. Would you stand with me? Romans chapter 15 beginning in verse 7. Amen. And we'll do verses 7 through 13 this morning. 
And if you have it, would you say amen? Amen. If you don't have it, it's on the screen behind me. The scripture says, Wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, and him shall the Gentiles trust. Now the God of hope, Fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the word of God that's been read in our hearing this morning. We're asking that in the next uh, few moments, Lord, that you let that word speak into our hearts and our lives. Let it touch us. Let it challenge us. And let it change us in the name of Jesus Christ. Would you say amen? Amen. You may be seated. So verse 7 continues the message of unity from the previous passages. I know it's been a month since we've been here, but, but it goes back to everything we've talked about since Romans chapter 12. And, and Paul begins by pointing again to Jesus Christ as our living example. We are to receive one another as Christ also received us. How do you receive one another? Well, how, how did Christ receive us? When we were unlovable, he loved us. When we were untouchable, he touched us. He embraced us. When we were facing a dreadful judgment that we deserved, a penalty that we had earned, he took our place and he died for us. Jesus Christ demonstrated there is no obstacle that could ever stand between us and his great love. He loved us with a love that doesn't have to have love back. Amen. He loved us with a love that loves us no matter what we do. That's the, the challenge. We are to receive each other. As Christ has received us. That word received has to do with welcoming into fellowship. It's more than just a grudging acceptance. It is the hug of friendship. It is the reception of a member of the family. And what Paul says is if you will receive each other the way that Christ has received us, then we'll bring praise and glory to God. God is glorified. God is uplifted. God is exalted when the church has unity. When the church receives one another like Christ has received us. That's the message. Amen. Whenever there's unity in the church, it, it glorifies God. It magnifies God. And that's the key. Christ has received us. Amen. We are fellow believers in the cross. We've all been washed in the, the blood of Jesus, baptized in his name, filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And if Christ has received us, all of us, how can we refuse to receive one another? 
How can we let divisions get between us and, and a brother or a sister? When the Gentiles received the baptism of the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 10, the Jewish church was somewhat upset. They were somewhat put off. that They, they had thought they might have had an exclusive angle on this thing called the church. But the point was well made in their discussions that those Gentiles, they received the Holy Ghost just like we did. They got the same thing we got. They got it the same way that we got it. God has accepted them. God has blessed them. God has put the sign and the seal of his covenant upon them. Amen. That's, if God has done that, then who are we to refuse them? Who are we to turn them aside? Who are we to say they can't be a part of the church? That's the message of this verse. There ought not be divisions in the church. There ought not be some who simply refuse to fellowship with a brother or a sister in the church. When we start drawing lines of division in the body of Christ, we're undermining the tremendous unity that Jesus Christ himself has established in the church on the basis of the cross. We stand together at the foot of the cross on equal footing, on level ground. There is no big me and little you. When we stand at the cross, we're all sinners, amen, saved by the grace of God. Uh, and grace means I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. There's nothing good in me that merited it. He loved me when I was unlovable. That's how Jesus Christ accepted me. And that's the call that I have in the book of Romans to Accept you the same way. Amen. Love would heal a whole lot of wrongs. Love would solve a whole lot of hurts. Love would keep a whole lot of bitterness and division out of the church. Love would get you to close your mouth sometimes when you're saying stuff you shouldn't say. Love would hold back some angry words. Love would hold back some judgmental con comments. Love would do a lot to bring the people of God together in unity if we just love each other. The way he, we all want to be loved by Him the way He loved us. My wife said earlier, I, I chuckled when she mentioned having a short fuse. Amen. But I want to, she wants to be loved in, in regardless of whether she sometimes has a short fuse or not. You know, I've got flaws. I've got faults. I want to be loved. Amen. And I, I want someone who loves me enough to overlook my, 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 my short fuse and my faults and my flaws. Amen. That's the way I want to be loved. All goes back to the golden rule. Treat others the way that you want to be treated. I, I'm supposed to love you like Jesus Christ has loved me. Romans chapter 15, verse 8. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. What an odd sentence. Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. What's that mean? Minister of the circumcision. In the ancient world, the act of circumcision was the main thing that separated the Jewish people from the rest of the world. 
by the command of God, they circumcised their sons on the eighth day. Amen. That was a covenant seal and sign. It was a evidence of the covenant they were in with God. And, and that act of circumcision became a symbol of the covenant people of God. And it's often used in Scripture as a general reference to the people of God. So when Paul says that Jesus was a minister of the circumcision, what he's saying is that Jesus was a minister of the Jews. Does that mean he was a Jewish preacher? That's not what it means. The word minister has to do with being a servant. Jesus was a servant to the Jews. Jesus did not come to be served. He came to serve others. The scripture said he came to give his life as a ransom for the lost. In, in order to fulfill the word of God, the Messiah came through the Jews and he came to the Jews as a servant uh, that he would give himself, that he would pour out his life in order to, in order to usher in a new covenant with God. Paul says that Jesus was a servant to the Jews. And he said that confirms the promise that was made to the fathers, to their ancestors. So Jesus, as the Messiah, establishes the truth of God. He establishes that that word truth there refers to an attribute of God that may be better understood as truthfulness or faithfulness. What Paul is saying is God never forgot the promise that he made to Abraham. The Savior of the world would come from the seed of Abraham. And when Jesus Christ was born, when God robed himself in flesh and became a man and that baby was laid in a manger in Bethlehem, it verified the truthfulness of the word of God. It verified that what God said uh, that he would do. Uh, generations may pass. Centuries may come and go. But God's going to do what he said that he would do. And so the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, and the death of Jesus verifies the truthfulness of the word of God. It confirms the promise. God had promised that he was going to do this for his people. He had promised this, this covenant with Abraham that there was a new covenant coming. There was a covenant coming that would not just loose them from worldly bondage, but would loose people from spiritual bondage. And that new covenant would establish a new kingdom. Amen. And that covenant has come in Jesus Christ. And the coming of that covenant in Christ establishes the truthfulness of God. Amen. Verse 9 says... And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, for this cause, I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. One of Paul's key points in the book of Romans and here in this chapter is that God's promise to the Jews through Abraham was always intended to include the Gentile people. Now, that may be a point of controversy for Paul's day, and for the Jews it shouldn't be a point of controversy today. Amen. But the, the fact is that from the very beginning, God's promise was extended to anyone, to whosoever will. The Jews and Gentiles alike were invited to come into covenant with God. And, and Paul proves that 
by using a series of Old Testament quotes. That's what the majority of the text that we're covering is today, is a series of quotes from the Old Testament that establish the fact that it was God's purpose all along. It isn't a new thing to include the Gentiles. It was God's purpose all along to include the Gentiles in the New Testament church and to receive praise from them. Jesus came as a servant to the Jews, but he came as much for the Gentiles as he did for the Jews. In order to establish that, Paul quotes from Psalm 18 and verse 49. The words of that psalm are also recorded in Samuel chapter 22 and verse 50. David is the one speaking. He is the I in the quote. For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto that name that, that, that I is David. And David is praising God in the context of that psalm and in the passage in Samuel. David is praising God for the victory that God has given him over his enemies. And he's praising God that God has made the nation subject to him, that God has given him authority and God has given him victory. And in verse 49 of Psalm 18, David announces that he will sing hymns of praise to the Lord among the nations of the Gentiles, so that the Gentiles may know the true God and join with him in the praise of God. David said, you've set me over nations. You've given me authority over peoples. You've allowed us to conquer and to reign, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the land of the Gentiles, and I'm going to sing the songs uh, of your praise uh, so that they might know there is a God in heaven uh, who is holy and righteous and mighty, and I'm going to invite them to know you with me and to worship you with me. To join me in praising God. So David, the great Jewish king out of whose lineage the Messiah will come, declares, I will bring the songs of God's praises to the Gentiles. And they will worship God with me. In that declaration, Paul sees the evidence of the future plan of God. He sees David's words as being prophetic in nature. He sees that God wanted the Gentiles to know him and to praise him, even in David's day. And that would come to pass in fruition in the day of Jesus Christ. So the main point here is that the Old Testament already had Jews and Gentiles joining together and praising God together in unity. That, that joint praise, that's the subject of this scripture quotation and every other scripture quotation that's going to follow in our text this morning. It's all about Jews and Gentiles worshiping God together from one heart, from one mouth, in one unanimous song, singing the praises of God. There's an overarching theme in all of these quotations, and it's simply this. Worship creates unity. Worship brings the body of Christ together in unity. The key point of all the scripture quotations this morning that, that Paul draws out of the Old Testament that we're going to mention in the next few moments is that Jews and Gentiles worship together in unity. 
And it's if we worship together in unity, if we can worship in unity, then we can do everything else in unity as well. Amen? If we can worship together, then it'll tear down the walls of division. If we can worship together, you can't come and, and worship with a brother if you've got something against him in your heart. You can't come and, and speak harsh words in the hall to someone and then come in here and gather around the altar and sincerely worship with them. The scripture said if your brother's offended you, go first and make, make things right. Go first and, and get things. You can't come and worship God in that, that state of disarray and disruption and disunity. But worship brings the church together in unity when we lift up our voices together as one voice and we sing together one song of praise unto God. Our, our thoughts and our hearts and our minds and our mouths and our words and our voices joined together for a common purpose uh, and we worship God. That unites us. That brings us together. That takes people from a myriad of walks of life and background and welds them together into one building fitly framed together, the scripture says, into one body. It's the common worship when we worship him together. Verse 10 said, and again he saith, rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. The verse here is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 43. And in Deuteronomy 32 and 43, Moses sings a song celebrating the righteousness of God and and takes the, the fact that the righteousness of God and that God takes vengeance on his enemies and that God saves his people. And Paul pulls out of that song one line, just one verse, just one portion. And in the words that Paul pulls out of that song, it's the place where Moses, in the course of his song, invites the Gentiles to join with God's people in rejoicing over the faithfulness of God. The key phrase here is with his people, which indicates that those who are not his people, his being God, those who are not a people are now worshiping God with those who are his people. Amen. Sounds a whole lot like something that gets repeated later on in the New Testament. Amen. We who were not a people are made a people. Amen. We who did not belong are, are made a part. Amen. We come together and worship with him. So all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, all the way going further back than David, all the way back to Moses, we find that foreshadowing, that prophetic word of God, that those people who are not a people are going to be joined together with the people of of God and they're going to worship him together. Jews and Gentiles praising God together with a single voice. And Paul sees that as an expression of God's plan to unite the two groups together. Again in verse 11 it says, and again praise the Lord all ye Gentiles and laud him all ye people. This quote is from Psalm 117 and verse 1. And the main point Again, 
is the reference to the Gentiles and the fact that they're invited to sing praises to the Lord, the God of Israel. Uh, this is another indication that the work of the Messiah was intended to bring Jews and Gentiles together into one body so that his people, along with all the other peoples of the world, may glorify God together. Amen. All people, the scripture says, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. Once again, we see unity is about worship, and worship is about unity. It brings us together in the presence of God. Verse 12 says, and again, Isaiah saith, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles trust. Now, this verse quotes from Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 10, and it describes the mission of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. The root of Jesse is Jesus, the Messiah. He would come from the line of David, who is the son of Jesse. And Isaiah 11 and 1 says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall flow out of shall grow out of his roots. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5 similarly describes Jesus as the root of David. So Jesus Christ was as God, he was David's Lord and creator. But as a man, Christ Jesus was the descendant. He was the lineage of David. Amen. He was his he come from the root of David, but is established over David. Amen? The Messiah would rule over the Gentiles then from that role, and they would place their hope in him, and they would trust in God through him. The point of all of these Old Testament scripture quotations is that Jesus bridged the greatest human division of all. He bridged the gap between Jews and Gentiles. He brought them together into one church, into one body. His church is not a segregated church. His church is not divided on racial lines or ethnic lines or even economic or financial lines. Amen. Or, or wherever your name is good or bad. No, his church is a united church. Uh, and in his church, Jews and Gentiles come together. In his church, uh, people from a diverse set of uh, backgrounds and walks of life and different histories uh, from different places uh, that, that have nothing else in common uh, are made common by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we become family and we worship together in unity. Amen. Because the thing that binds us together is Jesus Christ. The point is that if the division between the Jews and Gentiles could not divide the church, then who are we to let our petty differences drive a wedge between us? Will we allow our little disagreements to separate the people of God? This goes back to the very first verse that we covered today. We need to receive one another the way that we've been received. We need to love one another the same way that Jesus has loved us. He received us as one people, not as a fragmented group, but as his children. Likewise, we should be able to lay down our differences, lift our hands together, and magnify him in unity in his presence. 
receiving one another as we have been received and worshiping together because worship is unifying. It brings us together. Verse 13 says, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. The main body of the letter of Romans ends with a prayer. That's what this verse is. It's a prayer. And it's addressed to God. And Paul calls God the God of hope. What a wonderful description of God. Paul is preaching about trying to establish unity in the church. When he appeals to the God of hope, the hope that he's yearning for is the hope that we would receive one another as Christ has received us, that we would come together in a unity of purpose that is, mag- that is exemplified in a unity of worship. And so Paul prayed that God would fill his readers, those people who would read this letter, with all joy and peace as they believed in God. He also prayed that they would abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. So what Paul is praying is that the readers of the, of the book of Romans will have an experience with God that will validate what he has said. Let them be filled, he says, with joy and peace through the power of the Holy Ghost that hope might live in their hearts. We're filled with joy, peace, and hope through the Holy Ghost. You need the Holy Ghost. Amen. You need the presence of God in your life. Joy, that the joy that the Scripture's talking about is that sense of inward delight that keeps us excited about being a Christian, that keeps us excited about being under the blood of Jesus Christ, that keeps us excited about living a life uh, that magnifies and glorifies God. It's the kind of joy that you can have even when you're sad. Amen? It's a kind of joy that isn't impacted by the circumstances around me. There's a joy in my heart. Amen? On my worst day, I can still lift my hands to heaven and say, Thank God, you've been good to me. And in my, in my most tragic moments, sometimes, Brother Randy, when I'm, I'm driving down the road and I feel like the whole weight of the whole world is resting on my shoulders, Brother Donnie, without fail, I can lift my hands uh, and thank you, Jesus. Uh, you've been good to me. Uh, you've been better to me than I deserve. Uh, amen. That's the kind of joy we're talking about. Peace is a sense of inward calm and assurance that comes from knowing that we are the children of God and that He has His hand on our lives. More than just a freedom from worry, it's a condition of trust that says, I may not understand all things, uh, but I trust uh, that God... God works all things together for good. Uh, I may not understand what I'm going through, but I have enough faith to believe uh, that God's going to bring me through it. Uh, That's the kind of peace we're talking about. We're not talking about peace like there is no storm, uh, uh, there is no trouble, it's just all silence and good and quiet and your life is calm. No, no, no. We're talking about a peace uh, in the middle of a storm. Uh, We're talking about a peace uh, in the middle of trying circumstances that says, I don't have to understand understand why I just need to know that my God is going to take care of me. That's the kind of peace. And again, the hope 
the hope that we're talking about is that forward-facing aspect of faith, that expectation that this is not the end of the story, that this is not all that there is, that God has spoken a better word over my life, that God has a better thing for me. Amen. And all three of those blessings come into my life through the Holy Ghost. If you're down and out, need a little joy, need a little peace, uh, need a little hope, uh, get in an altar and pray until you break through uh, in the Holy Ghost uh, because that's where your joy comes from. That's where your peace comes from. That's where your hope comes from. Uh, It comes from being filled uh, with the baptism uh, of the Holy Ghost being washed. Jesus, I believe in this place this morning, amen, that there are people under the sound of my voice, uh, amen, that the Lord would love to lift you up uh, and encourage you. Uh, He's just waiting for you to lift your hands in his presence uh, and let his spirit flow through your life. Amen. The connotation is not just that we'll be filled with these things. I know it says that the God of hope fill you, and that word just is plain in the English, but in the Greek there's a greater connotation to it. It means to be overfilled, to be overflowing. You see, it's not just that you'll have joy, but you'll have more joy than you can contain. It's not just that you'll have peace, but that you'll have peace that overflows. It's not just that you'll have hope, but you'll have a hope that is boundless, that knows no limits. Amen, that is overflowing. Would you stand with me, Brother Ryan, if you'd come? Thank you so much for coming back in. See, that worked out, and I didn't even have to send anybody out after him. Amen. Over and over again this morning, we've seen Paul point to the fact that worship is unites us. It brings us together. It binds us together as the people of God. They say that men who face combat together never are the same again. They, they come out of that experience carrying a special bond that will bind them together for the rest of their lives. They're forever marked by the experience that they have in common. Well, I would never equate worship to combat but worship yields the same kind of power in a different way. As we come together in worship, God breaks down the barriers. He breaks down the walls. He breaks down the things that separate us. As we stand together as brothers and sisters in the presence of God, we are united together. We are bound together as the body of Christ. And that act of corporate worship serves to unify us in a common experience with God. And when you've stood together and you've worshipped together and you've wept together and you've prayed in tongues together and you've felt the glory of God together, you have a bond that, that is not so easy to walk away from, that's not so easy to escape, amen, something that stays with you throughout your years of your life, uh, amen, that knowledge, I have a brother and a sister that's standing with me, I have a family in Christ, uh, I'm not alone in this fight, uh, I'm not all by myself. Uh, Amen. There is a church and I'm received there and I'm accepted there and I belong there. That's the power of unity. This is the way I want to close this service. I I told Brother Ryan in my office before church, I'm not going to do a traditional altar service per se. I want to ask you to come. We're just going to stand together in the altar area. We're just going to sing a song of worship together. We're just going to magnify him together.
This is why I need church so bad. This is why I need to be in the presence of God with the people of God because I can't stand on my own. Because I can't make it by my own power and my own resources. I need to know there's somebody coming alongside of me that's going to encourage me, that's going to provoke me to good works, uh, that's going to pray for me. I need to know that there's a brother or a sister that's fighting the same fight that I'm fighting, that's up against the same enemies that I'm up against. Hallelujah. Amen. Can we just join together in worship and let's magnify the King in this house. Praise you, Jesus.